The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Galatians chapter 1. We start a brand new study this morning. I'm excited to be doing the book of Galatians together as we open God's Word. But there are a couple of things I want to call your attention to prior to that. Uh, first of all, uh, it's, ha- it's, gra- it's National Grandparents Day. Somebody sent me an email, said, Gary, would you recognize Grandparents Day? So if you're a grandparent, would you raise your hand so we can see who you are? Congratulations to you on being grandparents. So uh, I'm not sure what that means. I'm expecting presents for my grandkids today. I don't think they even know it exists. I didn't know it existed until today. Secondly, by God's grace, you have stepped up. We have four to 500 uh, from nursery through fourth grade only kids with us every single Sunday. We need over 120 workers every Sunday. Uh, we have two opportunities for you to step up and participate. We also need folks to come along as substitutes when folks cannot be there. You can pick up a connections uh, thing in the uh, connections flyer in the racks out there or just contact Casey Burke, our family pastor, and we'll be glad to add your name to a substitute list or for a couple of you to have the opportunity to come along our preschoolers. As you know, today is the 15th anniversary of the uh, 911 experience that we underwent 15 years ago. Watch this brief video. It's a prayer for our nation. Dear God, even though the events of 9-11 took place long ago, most of us can still recall them like it was yesterday. Some, more than others, are still feeling the effects and the pain. On this day, we remember all those who lost their lives and their loved ones to this terrible tragedy. We lift up their families and their friends and ask for strength, peace, and comfort. We also remember and honor those heroes who stepped in to help, to save, to serve. And we will never forget those who gave their lives for the noble cause of rescuing others. We are forever grateful and pray blessing and comfort over their families. We pray for the spirit of unity to revisit our nation. The unity we felt in the midst of our struggles and our confusion. We pray that our citizens would look to God for wisdom and guidance, just as many did during that time of uncertainty. But most of all, we pray for the swift return of our Savior, who will one day put an end to all tragedies and to all tears. We love you. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. That's a great prayer for our nation as we uh, remember that fateful day and celebrate God's goodness and how I pray our nation would return to that same spirit. I mean, churches were packed, people were honoring, seeking after God. 
part of that, part of what took place that day was the first responders who went and lost their lives. At TBC, we're blessed with a number of first responders. So if you're a first responder, would you stand? We'd like to see who you are, and I'd like to pray for you this morning. So any of you who are first responders out there, would you stand so we can see who you are? We've got men and women back here, back here, back here, over here. Would you keep standing? There we go. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Let's pray together. Would you make sure somebody's touching each one of these men and women? Would you reach a hand out or get up and uh, go where they are? And uh, let's make sure that uh, somebody's touching each of these folks. And I pray, Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace. We thank you for these men and women who serve our communities in Central Texas and literally around our nation. Father, we pray blessing and protection over them. And God, I pray that our nation be a nation that turns its eyes to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I forgot to mention our friends, these young men about a mile. They have a table set up in the hallway, and uh, they'll be selling their CDs out there. So let's uh, bankrupt them and get them all out of here so they don't take any back with them to drywall. So we'll take care of that for you. The book of Galatians addresses two major issues that haunted the church then and haunts the church now. Two major issues. Issue number one, what is the gospel? It's a theological issue. Secondly, was the issue as a social issue, how do we stay united in the body of Christ if we believe in the same gospel? So, so there are two major issues, a theological issue and a social issue. The theological issue, what is the gospel? Very fundamental question. In fact, I'm probably not going to teach you anything today you haven't heard already. I'm going to remind you of the truth of God's word. Secondly, in light of us being brothers and sisters in Christ, united by this gospel, how do we keep that union? That's what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks, or today and for the next several weeks. It, we're entitling this entire series one, as you can see on the, uh, the um, uh, inscription behind me. This will be the, the branding we use for the next several weeks, yeah, because there's one gospel and there is one body. And so we're going to look at these things together for the next several weeks as we look at the gospel and the implications of the gospel in our lives. What upsets you? What, what do you get upset about? What, what riles you up? I mean, if we could pass the mic around and say, Gary, I really get upset when, how would you fill in that blank? LSU. Now, for some of you, it's uh, <laughs> my dad, Halloween LSU loses over here. So, yeah, he screams at the TV more than I do. So, uh, but what is it that riles you up that upsets you? Maybe it is my first thing I hear is watching your team play football this afternoon. I expect to hear a lot of screaming at the television. Uh, What upsets you may be an answering machine that never allows you to talk to a real person. Does that upset anybody in here? Maybe what upsets you is 23.05 in the morning. Does anybody get upset about that one? Maybe it's I-35 anytime. Anybody get upset about that one? Maybe it's getting in a grocery line and there are 15 items, it says, and the person in front of you has 135 items. Does that ever upset anyone? Or, or maybe, I'm going to tell you what upsets me. I, I get upset with those of you who can eat whatever you want and not gain weight. I just don't like you, period. <laughs> I don't care who you are. I mean, that just upsets me. What riles you up? Maybe it's social issues like abortion, racism, terrorism. Maybe it's mean, disrespectful people. What riles you up? Say, Gary, why do you bring that up? You seem riled up right now. I mean, what's this about? Well, when you come to the book of Galatians, when Paul writes the book of Galatians, he's upset. He's riled up. I mean, you can't read the book of Galatians without understanding the tone of Galatians. And, and Paul is upset for a number of reasons. First of all, it, you, you can tell from the beginning he's upset. 
In every other epistle that Paul writes, he begins with the word of thanksgiving for the people he's writing to, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, to, to, to the Ephesians. He, he says, I thank my God, I thank my God, I thank my God. When you look at Galatians 1, 1 through 10 that we're going to look at this morning, there's no word of thanksgiving for the Galatians because Paul is upset and he's riled up with them. In fact, if you drop down to verse 6, he says, I'm amazed, astonished, shocked that you're so quickly deserting him that is God who called you by the grace of God for a different gospel. He said, when I think about you, I'm in shock. That's what I am. And so unlike all the other epistles that Paul writes in this particular epistle, there are no words of thanksgiving for the Galatians. By the way, these are churches in Galatians. The, the church in Colossae were, were several churches in one city, the city of Colossians. Same thing in Ephesians, same thing in Rome. This is a series, the Galatians is a region, not a city. So whereas Colossians and uh, Ephesians and Philippians, these were all Philippi, they were all cities. He's writing to a region, churches in a region called Galatia. And so he's writing to the churches in that area. He, he's upset. He's riled up. He, he doesn't give a word of thanksgiving to him. He, he says, I am shocked. How can you be doing this? He's upset. He's riled up. We see it. He says, you are distorting the gospel. You're deserting the gospel. You're perverting the gospel. If you look at uh, verse 7, he says, uh, you are deserting and you are perverting that which has been given to you. He's upset. He's riled up. He gets mad at Peter. We're, we're going to see in two weeks that he confronts Peter. Peter has come to Christ. Peter understands that Jew and Gentile should be part of the same body. But the false teachers have come in and said, hey, these Gentiles, they're not following the law of Moses. Yes, they believe in Jesus, but they're not getting circumcised. They're not keeping the Sabbath. They're not following the regulations of the law. So they are not true followers of Jesus. And so they come to Peter and Peter stops eating with the Gentiles. We call that table fellowship. It was, if you ate with somebody in the first century, you were friends with them. It showed that you were friends. And so Peter quit having table fellowship with the Gentiles because the Judaizers, these false teachers are coming in and saying, hey, they are really not true followers of Jesus because they're not keeping the Mosaic law. They're not getting circumcised, obeying the Sabbath and following all the regulations. So Peter it goes to side with the Judaizers, quits having lunch with the Gentiles. And Paul shakes his finger in his face and says, Peter, you're wrong. Paul's riled up. I mean, you can't read this book without understanding what he's riled, that he's riled up. He's riled up because there are false teachers who are coming in and questioning his apostleship. They're saying, what gives this man the right to do that? In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, that's really what he does to establish himself in, in, in the initial writings of the book. He says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from man, not through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He says, I want you to know I'm an apostle. I wasn't appointed by a pulpit committee. I wasn't appointed by some church selection committee. God made me an apostle. He's riled up. I mean, from the very beginning... When you read Galatians, you see a man who is upset. He's upset with Peter. He's upset with the Galatians. He's upset with these false teachers. But mostly he's upset because of the perversion of the gospel. And so the book of Galatians is a a book of theological correction where he says, I want you to know this is what the gospel is. But it's also a book of social correction. He's saying, if this is what the gospel is, this is how you should live. If this is what the gospel is and the gospel changes everything, then this is how you're to live. You're to live in unity. You're to live in harmony. 
That's why he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, one of the most familiar verses in this book, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, or slave nor free, uh, neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. You look around a room like this, we are men, we're women, we're we're a multi-ethnic church, we're a multi-generational church, we're a multi-racial church, and I say praise God for that. We've got folks of every color, every flavor, every stripe, every socioeconomic background. God has given us a diverse church. If you don't believe that, I'm an Italian Cajun. That's as diverse as it's going to get right there. (laughs) And so when we look at that, what we recognize, what we recognize is it's hard to have unity in the body. And he's saying the gospel changes everything. When you believe in the gospel, there are implications of the gospel. And part of that is being united, even though we're different. And so he's going to correct two things, theological error and social error. Theological error, what's the gospel social error? That is, we need to be united regardless of our differences. That's the book of Galatians in a nutshell. That's what we'll be looking at for the next 12 weeks. And saying, Gary, it's going to take you 12 weeks to teach that. You and the other guys, yeah, it's going to take us 12 weeks to work through the book of Galatians. Make no mistake about it. What Paul is most riled up about is not losing his inconveniences, not losing the pleasures of his day. He's not riled up because his football team is losing and because he's got to wait through three red lights on 2305. He's riled up because the truth of the gospel is being compromised. And, and as I have been studying this book all summer, I thought, Gary, I pray that what riles you up more than anything else is not when your coach doesn't change quarterbacks when he should, or, or not when you get in the line and you've got to wait for all these things, or, or not when you, answer, you try to get somebody on the phone and you can't understand a word they're saying trying to fix your computer. But what riles you up is the perversion of the gospel. Because, my friends, in the church today, the same issues that Paul's addressing to the Galatians happen all the time. There are those who pervert the gospel and those who, rather than be united, divide. So that's where we're going to be for the next 12 weeks as we study God's Word together. Let's look at Paul's introductory remarks together. As I said, he begins with the defense. He begins with the defense. He defends his apostleship. One way to deny the truthfulness of a message is to deny the authority of the one who speaks the message. And so obviously these Judaizers are coming in, these false teachers are coming in, and and they're saying, who does this guy think he is? What gives him the right to teach you? How do you know his message is right? Who who, who made him king over us? He's just a self-appointed, a self-anointed person. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, he says very carefully, he says, I want you to know I did not not, uh, sign up for this job. God's the one who called me to this job. Just a reminder, jot down Acts chapter 8 in your Bibles. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we have Paul's Damascus Road experience. You know the story. Paul is a persecutor of the church. He's walking the road from Jerusalem to Damascus. That road still exists. We have been on it. He's walking the road from, Damas- from Jerusalem to Damascus. He's struck blind. He's struck blind and he hears a voice and the voice says this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Before his name was changed to Paul, it was Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? This is Acts chapter 9. And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Rise up, enter the city and do what I tell you. So he goes into Damascus. He goes to the house of a man named Ananias. God tells Ananias, Saul of Tarsus is coming. Here's his response. He says, Lord, I've heard from many people about this man and how much harm he did to the saints in Jerusalem. He has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon him. Lord, don't send this man to my house is what he's saying. He's a bad dude. He's on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. 
He's killed the brethren in Jerusalem. He's put people in prison. And you want me to welcome them into my home? And the Lord says, yes. The Lord said to Ananias, go. He's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and before kings and the sons of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So God taps Paul on the shoulder. He's walking the road from Jerusalem to Damascus. He taps him on the shoulder and said, you're going to be my man. You're going to follow after me. You're going to go to this guy's house. He's blinded for three days. The scales come off his eyes and he trusts Christ as a savior. And the rest is history. You hold in your hands many books that he's written. That's the story of Paul. And so you come to Galatians and he's writing and he's saying, hey, I don't come in my own authority. I am not a self-anointed apostle. I am not a self-appointed apostle. If you look at verse one, I didn't come to the agency of men. God put me in this position. God placed me in this role. God is the one who has called me to this task. I didn't volunteer for it. I didn't sign up for it. God tapped me on the shoulder, changed my life, and I'm here. By the way, the word apostle means one who is sent out. He says, I've been sent out by God. And he says, I'm not by myself. There are brothers who are with me. Look at verse two. He says, I and the brothers with me are are the ones who are speaking to you. So Paul says, I'm not a lone ranger Christian. I'm not Jason Bourne doing all this stuff by myself. I've got other people around me. This is a message God has given me. The brothers are with me. By the way, just a word of caution here aside, when you see Christian men or people purporting to be Christians who are leading and they lead alone and they can never get along with anybody and there's nobody else with them, run. That's how cults get started. And so he says, I want you to know in verse two, all the brethren are with me. And he's writing to the churches at Galatia. So Paul begins with the defense of his apostleship. He says, I am not self-appointed. I'm not self-anointed. God is the one who gave me this task, this responsibility. Then he describes the gospel. He describes the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? He doesn't really define it, but he describes it. In 1.4, he says, uh, or I'm sorry, drop down to 1.6. In 1.6, he says, I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of God for a different gospel. At the end of verse 7, who distort the gospel. Then in verse 8, if they preach to you a gospel contrary to this one. Then in verse 9, if you are preaching, if any man comes to you and preaches a gospel contrary. So we've got to answer a very basic question here. What's the gospel? The Greek word for gospel means good news. Good news. That's literally what it means, the good news. The gospel is the good news. Good news about what? It's an interesting Greek word. The, the Greek word is euagelion. See, in, in, in ancient days, if a dignitary or king was coming to town, how'd you find out about it? I mean, there was no Facebook post saying, hey, the king's coming to town, show up at the town square tomorrow. There were no newscasters on television, there were, newspapers, there were no newspapers, there were, there were no radio broadcasts. So how did you find out when the king was coming? The euagelion came. The proclaimer of the good news came. See, he would come to the town square and his horse probably, and, and he would cry out, the king is coming, the king is coming, and he would go down the pathways of your community telling you the king is coming. Over and over, he would remind you that the king is coming to town because they had to get the word out that the king was coming. We had a Uigelion early on in early church, uh, I'm sorry, early American history. His name was Paul Revere. Remember Paul Revere? What was his message? The British are coming, the British are coming. When Stephen Chung was on staff here, he'd walk into the office and I'd howl, the British are coming, the British are coming. Run, run, hide. And Uagelion is one who proclaims the good news that the king has come. The king has come. That's the gospel, the good news. The king has come. 
Well, King Jesus came for a very specific purpose. Don't take it from me. Take it from the text. Look at verse 4. He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present age according to the will of God and the Father. Look on your apps. Look in your Bible. It's right there. Verse 1-4. There's the gospel. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That's the gospel. The gospel is very simple. It's the good news that Jesus came specifically to give himself. He gave himself. We know that means his death. He gave himself on the cross on our behalf. He gave himself. I I, I love it as we were leading in worship and you're talking about Christ who gave himself. We sung about the cross. We sung about Jesus and what he did for us. That's exactly what the gospel is. He gave himself that he might deliver literally the Greek word. The New Testament is written in Greek. He would rescue us out of this present age. This was the father's plan. He gave himself. The agency of the gospel is Jesus. There is no gospel without Jesus. There is no good news apart from Jesus. Amen? I mean, without Jesus, it's all bad news. Without Jesus, there's no hope. But with Jesus, there is eternal hope. And so he says, he gave himself for our sins. This is a fact, if you drop down to verse 6, it says, you were called by the grace of Christ. Grace is a gift. Grace is that which is a gift given to us. Uh, when we first came here, I used to drive this. I, 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 this was a Volkswagen Rabbit. You ever see a Volkswagen Rabbit? It's the worst car ever made. Didn't have an engine. It had two hamsters that were running as fast as they could under the hood trying to get me places. It, it, it had so little horsepower that when we got to Suicide Hill, it was a gamble if we would make it up or not with me in that car. I, I mean, I, I had to put that car on, not get into it. That car broke down on days that start with T, Tuesdays, Thursdays, today, and tomorrow, regularly. <laughs> broke down all the time. It was an awful little car, just awful. But, but I had it. My car from seminary uh, pooped out when we got here. I had to have a replacement. That's about all we could afford back then. TBC, when we came, were 50 people on a Sunday morning. That's all we had. So we weren't, I, I, I took a pay cut out of graduate school to come pastor TBC, <laughs> Literally. And I had to replace a car. That's all we could afford. I mean, that's all we could afford. Well, I drove that around for a couple of years, and there was a dear couple here who felt for us. They were getting ready to trade their car in. It was a Chevy Blazer with about 140,000 miles. And they showed up one day, and they said, uh, we want to talk to you and Bev. And so Bev and I sat in our living room, and we're talking to them. And, and he said, we've got something we want to give you. And so he pulls out keys and a title. He says, we're going to trade our blazer in, but rather than trade it in, we notice your car gives you a lot of problems. And I said, under my breath, I want to mumble, problems, you don't know. And he said, we want to give you our blazer. It's not much, but it's better than what you have. Man, what do you do? What do you do? Somebody wants to give you a car. Somebody said, I know what I do. I take those keys in a heartbeat. That's what I do. (laughs) I I, I began to say, hey, we can't do that. I mean, we, we can't do that. I, I, I can pay you a little bit each month for it. No, Gary, it's a gift. Um, I can come work in your yard. I'd love to do yard work. I'll work in your yard. It may take 10 years, but I'll work in your yard and pay it off. It's a gift, Gary. Just take it. One of the hardest things I've had to do in my life was to receive a gift. Can you relate to that? Somebody said, no, I can't, no. 
<laughs> See, I'm convinced if I could tell you, hey, you could have salvation for 500 bucks, you'd line the aisles. I'm convinced if I would tell you, you know, if you'd pull the weeds around this building all next spring and summer, you could have salvation, you'd show up every week. If I told you you could go and serve in our nursery week after week after week and have salvation, some of you would say, I'd rather go to hell because there's so many kids back there. <laughs> and we've got 600 kids in the nursery. But you'd say, hey, I'd sign up for that nursery in a heartbeat. But Jesus says, you can't buy it, you can't earn it, you can't work for it, you can't be good enough for it, you can't be religious enough for it because it's a gift given to you. It's grace. It's yours. Have it. It's the hardest thing in the world. Because we think it ought to be more complicated than that. We think it ought to be more difficult than that. We think we ought to have to do something for it. We are trained as Westerners to say if, if it's free, it's not good. Well, my friends, it, it's free, but it came at a high, high price. I love what Max Licato says. He says, mark it down. God does not save us because of what we've done. Only a puny God could be bought with your tithes. Only an egotistical God would be impressed with your pain. Only a temperamental God would be satisfied with their sacrifices. Only a heartless God would sell salvation to the highest bidders. Only a, God, only a great God does for his children what they can't do for themselves. And you should be saying glory, hallelujah. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Those who come to faith have declared their spiritual bankruptcy and are aware of their spiritual crisis. Our cupboards are bare, our pockets are empty, our options are gone. We've long since stopped demanding justice. We plead for mercy. We don't brag, we beg. We ask God to do for us what we can't do without, without him. We have seen how holy God is and how sinful we are. So we are beggars coming to the foot of the cross saying, Lord Jesus, we accept you in the work that you've done for us. David Platt in his book, Radical, defines the gospel this way. This is the gospel that the just and loving creator of the universe has looked, hopeless, looked upon hopelessly sinful people, sent his son, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin and the resurrection so that all who trust in him will be reconciled to God forever. That's the gospel. Jesus came, Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus came according to the scriptures he suffered, he died, and he rose again on the third day. That's the gospel, and you can trust in him. That's the gospel. But Paul's got a problem. He says, you're deserting the gospel. I mean, if you drop down to verse 6, look at what he says. I am amazed, literally I'm shocked, that, that you are so quickly deserting. And the word deserting here is not having to do with a, a chocolate fountain or chocolate pie or chocolate cake. Deserting means to go AWOL. It means you're abandoning, you're leaving. He says, you're leaving the gospel, the true gospel. You're deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. How can you do that? Paul says, I'm shocked, I'm amazed, I'm astonished. How, how, knowing that he's given himself on behalf of your sins, how can you do that? How can you turn from that which you've just received? And how can you do it so quickly? By the way, here's what's interesting. Paul's first missionary journey... It's probably when the Galatians came to know Christ. And there's some debate among scholars about when the book of Galatians was written. Some say as early as 49 AD. Some say as late as 53, 54 AD. If the book of Galatians was written in 49 AD, it's the earliest book of the New Testament that we have. It's earlier than the Gospels. Mark was the first Gospel written in about 53 AD. So you hold in your hands, think about the significance of this. This is the first writing, I believe it is, the first writing in the New Testament period. Earlier than the Gospels, 
in the first of all Paul's writings. And he's correcting theological problems and social ills. And he said, we've got to get this right, guys. And 2,000 years later, we're still trying to get it right. And so Paul says, how can you desert this for a different gospel? Now, the word different there is interesting. It's an interesting word. He's saying, what Paul is saying is, this is not a denial of what Christ has done. They are not denying. They're not saying that the gospel is not true. What they're saying is, Jesus is not enough. You've got to add something to him. This is Jesus plus. Jesus plus. You know when you go to the gas pump, I go to Sam's to get my gas, I go to Sam's to get my gas, I, I put my Sam's card in, then I put my Visa card in, and, and then I've got to make a choice. I, I want uh, regular unleaded, unleaded plus or unleaded premium, and so, so it's like the first one's not good enough, you've got to have one of the other two, and I don't understand all that, but I, I know I've got three options, or I always go for the cheapest one. Well, here's what's happening. They're saying Jesus is not enough, it's Jesus plus or Jesus plus plus. Remember, these are Jewish people coming to faith with Gentiles. And they're saying, we got a problem. These guys aren't keeping the law. They're not getting circumcised. They're not keeping the Sabbath. They're not following the regulations. They're bringing ham sandwiches to the potluck dinner. Oh, my. And I say, bring on the pork chops. But that's the problem. Can you understand that? I mean, the Jews hated the Gentiles. And now they're saying, it's okay to worship together. It's okay for your boys to marry their girls. It's okay for your daughters to date their sons. It's okay to share a meal together and have table fellowship, pretending everything is okay. And everything is okay because the gospel has united them and the gospel changes everything. But false teachers have come in and led them astray from that. And so they're deserting that truth. And so they're not saying Jesus is not the Messiah. They're not saying Jesus is not the king. They're saying you need Jesus plus the law of Moses. You need Jesus plus circumcision. You need Jesus plus the Sabbath. Now, I'm glad nobody teaches that today, aren't you? I mean, think about it. You need Jesus plus baptism to really be saved. You need Jesus plus speaking in tongues to really be saved. You need Jesus plus church membership to really be saved. You need Jesus plus tithing which if I was adding something to it, that's the one I'd add, <laughs> to be saved. Do you see what's happening, friends? Do you see what's happening? What you're saying, if you have to add anything to Jesus, is that Jesus is not enough. And I'm going to tell you, my Savior's enough. He's enough. When God's Son sacrificed His life on that cross... We don't have to add anything to it. Tim Keller says this, a different gospel is not a gospel at all. Jesus is the good news of the gospel. There is no gospel apart from Jesus. So if you're here today and you're saying, man, I believe in Jesus, plus I've got to do this good stuff. That's not grace. I believe in Jesus and I've got to, you fill in that blank, whatever it is, that's not the gospel. The gospel, the good news, is Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? And we'll hang our hat on that. That's why Paul was so riled up. That's why Paul was so upset. That's why Paul was so mad. In fact, he says in verse 10, he says, Am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? 
You tell me. You read the first nine verses. Is he trying to please men? Of course not, man. He is saying, I want you to know, I want you to understand what the true gospel is. In fact, he uses some of the harshest language he uses anywhere when twice in verses 8 and 9 he says, let us be accursed, let us be accursed. That means let, let us go to hell, basically, if we do not teach the truth of the gospel. There's one gospel, not many gospels. Have you embraced the true gospel? You know, if you go back up to verse 4, it says, This was according to the will of our God and Father. It's according to the will of our God and Father. When I was a kid growing up in New Orleans, we had a great youth group, and I remember one of our youth speakers came one time, and he used a great story. And the story was about a man who operated a drawbridge. There's a man, his job was to operate a drawbridge. You know what drawbridges are. So uh, there, there's a drawbridge with railroad tracks on it. And so when the drawbridge was down, trains could traverse back and forth over the train tracks on the bridge. But when the bridge went up, it went up so that ships or boats could go through the river. And that was his job. He loved his job. He went every day and he operated the drawbridge. One day on a Saturday morning, he decided to take his six-year-old son with him to show his son what he did at the drawbridge. He's having a great time showing his son everything and he kind of lost track of time and lost track of his son And he heard the whistle of a train in the distance. And he realized the drawbridge was up. It was time to put it down so the train could come through. And everyone obviously would not go catapulting into the river. And so he got ready to hit the lever to put the drawbridge down. But to his dismay and horror, he looked out and saw his son. And his son was playing in the gears of the drawbridge. And he realized if he hit that lever his son would be crushed to death in the gears of the drawbridge. His life would be lost. And he had moments to make it, seconds to make a decision. Do I crush my son? Or do I save my son and all these people catapult into the river on the train? So he made a decision. Through tear-stained eyes and weeping in the place where he was, he hits the lever, the bridge begins to go down, and he sees his son losing his life in the gears of the drawbridge. The train comes across the track, some people look up and wave, most people just go speeding by. And you see the illustration, don't you? I mean, it's a clear illustration. Jesus the boy in the drawbridge who gave his life so the world passing by could do more than wave but trust him for eternal hope in life and as a high school kid I loved that illustration but then as I started studying the scriptures I realized there's something missing there that illustration is a little problematic it's a great illustration but here's the problem look in that verse it was the will of God You see, in that illustration, it was an accident. In reality, the death of Jesus, as Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, was by the predetermined plan of God. And as you look in Galatians 1, it was by the will of God. And so when Jesus gave his life on that cross, as it says in that verse, verse 4, it wasn't some cosmic accident. It was a pre-planned purpose of God to crucify his son 
so you could have eternal life through the forgiveness of your sins. That's grace. That's grace. And so I don't know what you've been trusting in. Maybe it's faith plus good works. Maybe it's faith plus the fact that you've been baptized. Maybe it's faith plus you joined a church somewhere. Maybe it's faith plus you serve the body of Christ. Maybe it's faith plus you give money. Maybe it's faith plus you serve in the nursery. That's not the gospel. The gospel is faith in Christ, our Savior, alone. And when you trust in him, you have eternal life. When we do baptism, John, would you come up for a second? I'm going to use you as an illustration. This is my brother, John Bashir. Would you thank him? He didn't know I'm doing this. The lesson is you never sit real close up front. That's the lesson here. Never so again. We're, we're going we're gonna to pretend we're going to baptize John right here. And John's a dear friend of mine. I know his testimony. I know his story. He's been a TBCer for 30 plus years. So John, uh, you're in the water. I'm here. I put my hand up. You put one there. You put one there. By the way, if you haven't been baptized the first Sunday in August, we're going to do this. And John has been to many of our baptisms. If I got you in the water, I'm going to ask you this question. John, have you trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and salvation? I have. You're trusting in him and him alone for your salvation. I am. Based on your testimony, my brother, if we had water here, I would baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and pull you out of the water unless somebody paid me enough to keep you under and send you to glory. <laughs> Thank you. You got it. Okay. Thanks, John. Did you hear those two questions? Did you hear those two questions? Is Christ enough? Hey, and when you share the gospel with your friends and your family members, don't tell them about faith plus. Tell them about Jesus. Father, thank you. Thank you for a Savior who's enough. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. The good news that there is forgiveness for those that place our faith in the Christ who died for us. If you're here today and you're not sure if you have done that, I'm asking you to pray with me right where you are. Just pray silently in your heart right now these words, Lord Jesus. I trust in you and you alone for the forgiveness of my sin. I ask you to be my savior. I thank you for eternal hope and eternal life and forgiveness. In your name, amen. My friends, if you prayed that prayer today, would you get in touch with me this week? I'd love to talk to you about it. Lord bless you, and you're dismissed.